0: Amen. What a tremendous song. I think of what uh, Isaiah said 600 years before the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I lay in Zion a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Of course, he was talking about the Lord, wasn't he? Paul said, uh, we're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. What a tremendous song. That spoke to my heart and blessed me. And I'm thankful I got to hear that tonight. And I'm glad you're here. Thank you for being in your place. I was thinking uh, tonight as I came to service, my dad was saved in a revival meeting in 1930. And Dennis Shannon was the pastor or the the evangelist. I don't know a thing about him, but I remember that name as my dad would give his testimony. And uh, my dad was nine years old in 1930. And that revival meeting lasted for six weeks every night, including Saturday night, for six straight weeks. And uh, my grandfather loaded up that Model A every night, drove that seven miles into town to go to those revival meetings. My dad got saved. I'm thankful my dad was faithful to those meetings. And I I was thinking about that. I don't think those people back then were any less busy than we are today. Uh, They didn't have a lot of the modern conveniences and all the things and gadgets that we enjoy today, and yet they were faithful And uh, I was thinking about you folks, and I know you've had busy days today, and yet you're being faithful to God's house. And God honors that. We may not always know all the results of that faithfulness uh, for many, many years, but I'm sure thankful, and I'm talking about it 88 years later, that because my grandfather was faithful, my dad got saved. If my dad had never gotten saved, I don't know that I would have ever gotten saved. And so uh, thank the Lord uh, for your faithfulness tonight. Well, let's go to the book of Isaiah, chapter twenty-six, if you will. Isaiah chapter twenty-six. We're going to look at just two verses, but I believe they're they're wonderful verses for us to consider tonight. Isaiah and chapter twenty-six, and we'll look at verses three and four. The Bible says here in verse three, thou'll keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. The thoughts that you entertain in your mind today as a guest will become permanent residence in your actions tomorrow. The thoughts that you and I entertain in our mind today as a guest. We don't don't plan to keep them. They're just kind of passing through. They're just kind of visiting. We don't intend to dwell on them. But the thoughts that we entertain as a guest today in our mind will become permanent residents in our actions tomorrow. Why? Because... In Proverbs 23, 7, it says, as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Our thoughts are very, very important to our walk with God. Now, this verse says, thou keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. Boy, the world seeks peace tonight, doesn't it? And we all do. Individually, we want peace. We want joy. We want fulfillment. We want satisfaction. We want things to be calm. We hate days where there's turbulence, where there's trial, there's turmoil. We, We get frustrated. We get angry. We like peace. We like peace in our life. We want peace in our family. We want peace in our communities. We want peace in the world. And, and people look for peace in lots of different ways. They try to find that fulfillment. They try to find that satisfaction. And so many people today can't find it. And so they end their lives. Suicide is on the rise by huge percentages in our, in our country today, even among young people. And, and we see the problem with drugs and alcohol and, and uh, all these different things that people are trying to find some satisfaction, something that will calm their soul. And yet God says we can have this peace that we long for and seek for by having a mind that stayed upon thee. What's on your mind tonight? If we could turn on a PowerPoint there in the back, pull down a screen, and if we could scroll down on that screen, all of my thoughts... In the last 24 hours. I don't think I'm going to stay. But if if you could look line by line at every thought that has been in my mind for the past 24 hours, if you could scroll down that and read that, those thoughts would describe who I am. In other words, After reading all of my thoughts over the last 24 hours, you would have a very good idea of what I'm all about. They would describe me. But your thoughts are not only descriptive, they're prescriptive. If you could look at my thoughts, they would not only describe to you who I am, but they would tell you where I'm going. Now, God says, he, he beseeches us in Romans 12 to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. And, and, and we get that, okay, God wants my life. God wants me to, to give my all to him because of what he did for me. I'm to give my life back to him. But how? What does that involve? Well, he goes on in verse 2, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. You see, that's where it all has to start. We might think, well, I got to quit doing this. I got to start doing this. And, 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 and yet, we got to back that up a little bit because the only way we're going to do the right things is if we think the right things. We've got to have a renewed mind. God says in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Do you carry handcuffs? Because there are some thoughts that you need to put under arrest. There are some thoughts that we need to put into captivity. We need to bring into captivity to to submit to Christ rather than those things that the world is offering us. We're to to bring these things into captivity. What is on your mind? I want you to notice that I believe there are three essential ingredients to a mind that's stayed upon God. How do we develop a mind? Paul said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, How do we, how do we think like the Lord? How do, we, how do we get to that place where we're not intrigued by all this stuff in the world and we're not tempted to, to, to in our thoughts, go down that road of the world or, or self or pride or all those things? How do we have a mind that stayed upon God? I think there are three essential ingredients. First of all, I believe a staid mind upon God is dependent upon a pure mind. Our mind needs to be pure. We're to bring every thought into captivity to obedience to Christ. Now, there are only two ways something can can get into my brain or into my mind. There's only two entry points. There's only two gates, if you please, or openings into my mind. I used to think when I was in school, the night before the test, if I took the textbook and I placed it carefully underneath my pillow, and then I laid my head directly over the textbook on that pillow, that through the night, somehow through the process of osmosis, the information in the textbook would diffuse into my brain cells and the next morning I could walk into the classroom and ace the test. Now, I've tested that theory many times. It doesn't work. That's not how stuff gets into our brain. There's only two ways something can get into our thoughts, through our eyes and through our ears. Those are the only two entry points. Now, you better have some border patrol. You better have an immigration policy we got to build a wall. I'm not talking about politics right now. I'm talking about what's coming into our mind. If we just allow anything in, if we just allow all things to come into our mind, it's like if your children, when they they first start eating solid food, boy, you work hard at trying to get them to open their mouth, and you're pushing that spoon into their mouth, you play airplane, you know, open up. You work really hard to get them to put something in their mouth that's good for them, that's going to help them to grow and so on. Well, once they master that, now they want to put everything in their mouth. You ever notice that a little kid, he's crawling on the floor, he's picking up the dog toy and putting it in his mouth. I mean, he's, he's going after everything. And you've got to teach him, no, 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 that doesn't go in your mouth. That's nasty. That's dirty. No, no, no. If he grabs the Clorox from underneath the sink, don't let him drink it. Right? You want him to have a closed mi- mouth to some things. Now listen, if we're going to be healthy spiritually, we've got to have a closed mind to some things. We've got to put up some patrol. We've got to say that's not going to go in there. And those gates are our eyes and our ears. The psalmist in Psalm 101 and verse 3 said, I'll set no wicked thing before my eyes. Why would he say that? Because Jeremiah in Lamentation 3 said, Mine eye affecteth mine heart. Now we often use that verse in a positive way. Your, Your eye affects your heart. I love taking kids to the mission field and the college work we get to take these kids to mission uh, fields, you know, and, and, and it never fails. When you take kids to a mission field, half of them will get called to missions. Why? Because their eye affects their heart. They, they see the need, they see the, the the tremendous challenge of getting people the gospel, they they see the the, the emptiness in their lives and and, and that touches their heart and they want to be a part of getting the gospel to them. So your eye affects your heart in a positive way, but it it, it also works negatively. What you allow into your eyes is going to affect your heart. And once it's in your heart, it's going to dictate how you live. You remember in the Old Testament, a man by the name of Lot. Lot was Abraham's nephew. And in Genesis 13, the Bible tells us that the herdsmen of Abraham's cattle and the herdsmen of Lot's cattle got into a strife. They were at odds with each other. They were were bickering and fighting. And Abraham, being a spiritual man, said to Lot, this isn't good. This is a very poor testimony. We're brothers. Uh, Our enemies ought not to be seeing this and hearing this. And so he said, I think the best thing would be for us to separate. We need to go our separate ways. You've got enough cattle and things to to sustain yourself, and and I do as well, and and we'd be better off on our own so that our testimony remains intact for God. So Abraham says to Lot, Lot, if you want to go to the right hand, then I'll go to the left. If you want to go to the left hand, then I'll go to the right. Okay. I used to read that and I'd think, okay, now we know that Lot chose the wrong way because we've read the rest of the story and we know that Lot ends up in Sodom. Right? He, he ends up down there in Sodom, wicked city. And Lot ends up in a lot of trouble. But what if Lot had chosen the right way? Does that mean Abraham would have ended up in Sodom? Because Abraham said, Lot, you want to go right, I'll go left. You want to go left, I'll go right. And we know that Lot chose the wrong way. Well, what if he had chosen the right way? And I got to looking at that, and you can look at it in the English And you can look at it geographically, and here's what happened. The Bible says, Abraham said, Lot, if you want to go to the right hand, I'll go to the left. you want to go to the left hand, I'll go to the right. And The Bible says, and Lot, next verse, lifted up his eyes. And he saw the well-watered plains of Jordan, that it was well-watered everywhere, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest into Zor. And Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom. You know what? Lot didn't go right or left. He chose a whole different direction. But at that point in his life, I don't read that he was a wicked man. Now, he made a bad decision. He should have listened to the elder Abraham. He should have listened to the spiritual counsel that God had placed in his life. He makes a wrong decision. I'm not cutting him any slack there. But I don't see where Lot was wicked at that point. Certainly not like at the end of his life. I mean, he ends up in a cave, drunk, committing incest with his daughters, fathering two sons through his daughters who become heads of wicked, idolatrous, God-hating nations. So how does Lot go from making a simple wrong decision one day to ending up like that? Well, you've probably figured this out, but the best commentator, commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Now, sometimes you have to read for a while. In fact, in this case, you've got to read all the way to 2 Peter 2. And when you get to 2 Peter chapter 2, God finally comments on Lot. And he says in verse 8, that righteous man. Wow, Wait, what? Righteous man? Lot? Righteous man? Well, understand something. When God says that Lot was a righteous man, he was talking about his position. If you're saved, positionally, you're a child of God. But just because you're saved doesn't mean you always act like a child of God, right? Sometimes you wish your kids didn't have your name, right? And so Lot was a Christian, but he wasn't acting like a Christian. Solomon was wise, but he certainly didn't always act wisely. So Lot was a righteous man. I believe you'll meet Lot in heaven. So positionally, he was a believer. But practically, he was away from God. And the Bible says that righteous man dwelling among them, the people of Sodom, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. See, Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom. He starts living in Sodom. In fact, in one place there in Genesis, it tells us he was sitting in the gate of Sodom, which most theologians believe he was holding some kind of political office there. So he's down there in this wicked city, terrible city. And he's hearing, he's seeing what they're hearing and seeing. And it's getting into his heart and it's taking his life away from God. And friends, I don't think I have to spend too much time tonight convincing you that we're living in some days very much like Sodom. And if we're not careful, if we allow everything in this culture to go into our eyes and everything to go into our ears, it's going to take our mind away from God. And thus, our life as well. Paul said, finally, brethren, what sort of things are true? What sort of things are honest? What sort of things are just? What sort of things are pure? What sort of things are lovely? What sort of things are of good report? If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. So let's turn the power projector back on and let's scroll down my thoughts and with each one of them, let's ask. True, true. Honest, just, pure, lovely, of a good report, virtuous, praiseworthy? How are our thoughts... Do we have tonight the mind of Christ? No wonder we lack peace because our mind is not stayed upon God. And a stayed mind must, first of all, be a pure mind. But secondly, I believe a stayed mind is a purposed mind. It's easy to become distracted in our minds. It's easy to be duplicitic in our thinking. It's easy to have our mind cluttered with with lots of things. And and, and we see this even in the Bible among some of the best people there are. You, You think about the disciples. I mean, these men were with the very Son of God. They were traveling with Him. They were ministering with Him. They're around Him constantly. They're hearing His preaching, His teaching, His conversation. They're watching His actions. I mean, How can you not live for God in that environment, right? How can you be thinking about anything else? And yet they come to a city called Samaria. And Jesus goes there for the express purpose of winning this lady at the well to Christ he knows that there's a great revival waiting to happen there in John chapter 4. In fact, it's one of the greatest revivals in all the Bible. He ends up staying two more days and the whole city comes out to hear him because of the testimony of the woman. And then they believe on, uh, on him because of his word. And so a great revival. But all the disciples could think about is, what are we going to eat? I, I think of the resurrection. The resurrection is probably the most important event in all the Bible. Now, there are a lot of great events, but without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our faith is vain, our preaching is vain, we're yet in our sins, we might as well close the door, right? I mean, if there's no resurrection, we're done. So, of all the events in the Bible, the resurrection is probably the most crucial. It's it's the cornerstone, really, of our faith. And it's interesting, as John is writing his gospel and telling us about this resurrection. He tells how the women went early to the sepulcher and they saw the stone rolled away and the angel that said, he's not here, he's risen. Go tell his disciples that he goes before you into Galilee. He'll meet you there. And so they, they come back to the disciples, the women do, and they tell him, hey, he's alive. Uh, we've seen the angel and he told us this. And, and John says that Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved He's talking about himself, because he never names himself in his own gospel. So he describes himself that way. So he says, Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. In other words, Peter and I, we ran to the sepulcher. And the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And stooping down, looking in, saw the linen clothes lie. Yet went he not in. Then came Peter and went in unto the sepulcher, and saw the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his face, not lying with linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in that other disciple, which did outrun Peter. It's really interesting, John. Here's this crucial doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and John, in his narrative of it, tells us twice, I was faster than Peter. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) And what's really amazing to me is that the Holy Spirit allowed him to put it in there. But it just shows how we can be... So duplistic in our thinking, we can get distracted by the non-essential stuff. And we got to be careful. You think of Martha. Martha was a woman that loved the Lord. The Lord loved her. It tells us that in the scripture. And Jesus would often come to Bethany and he would lodge with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. What a a great uh, 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 family this was, so to speak. And and, and one day Jesus is coming in Luke chapter 10 and Martha, boy, I tell you, that lady wanted to do her best. I mean, I don't question her motive one bit. She wanted that house to be perfect. She wanted that meal to be right. This was Jesus. She knew who he was. She, she had believed in him and she loved him. And she wanted her, it to be her best. But she got distracted, didn't she? By the fact that Mary wasn't helping out. Just sat at his feet, heard his word. Martha's careful and troubled and cumbered and, and about all these things. And Jesus said, Thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. You see, we can get distracted, we can become duplistic. And I believe God would have us to have a purposed mind. The apostle Paul he, he said that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. When I was a boy growing up on the farm, my dad, I don't remember ever learning to drive a tractor. Of course, tractors were very simple in those days. They were not difficult to operate like they would be today with all the computers and things. But back in those days, pretty simple to operate a tractor. But I don't remember my dad ever teaching me how to drive a tractor. I can remember as a little boy sitting in my dad's lap in the tractor seat with my hands on the steering wheel, thinking I was driving it probably before I was. And my dad, as just a little kid, I was driving tractors, doing chores and taking them even out on the road. That was really cool, you know. And, uh, but one thing my dad would never let me do, he'd never let me plow a field. That was dad's job. He'd plow. I could come behind with a disc and work up the ground, you know, but dad always plowed. And plowing is the first thing you do in the spring. It's, it, it's cool. I mean, it's, it, it's the first thing you do as the season begins. You know, you turn that earth over and the smell and all those things of the ground. It's, it's great. And as a farmer, man, you look forward to that time when the, it dries out. and You can get in those fields and start that field work. And I would bug my dad and say, Dad, can I plow? Can I plow? Can I plow? My dad had a favorite expression. He'd say, we'll see. And that meant table it you know, don't bring it up again. And so every year we kind of go through this. And one year I was probably about 13 and I was bugging my dad about plowing. plowing. And he he thought a minute, he said, uh, okay, I'll go to the shed, hook up the plow. Oh man, this was it. You know, I'd reached the pinnacle, you know. And so man, I ran to that shed. I got that tractor cranked up and, and hooked up that plow and pulled it out by the fuel pump. And and began to fill it with uh, fuel, and my dad was greasing the plow and getting it all set. And we jumped on that thing, and my dad drove the plow tractor down to a field, it's about twenty acres, nice square field. Pulled to the middle of that field, and he got out of the tractor seat, and he looked at me and he said, "Now, John, it's really important that we get the first furrow across the field absolutely straight. It's got to be straight." because that furrow dictates everything you do from here on out. And if the first furrow's not straight, everything's gonna be off, and when you get to the end, you're gonna have little pie shapes on the end of both ends of the field that we're not gonna be able to do anything with. So you gotta get this first time across absolutely straight. How are you gonna do that? You ever notice that teenagers can say four words in one syllable? I don't know. know, And I said, I don't know. And uh, he said, uh, jump up in the seat." So I jumped up in the seat of that tractor. And he said, now look out over the tractor. What do you see? Nothing. I mean, There's a bunch of dead corn stalks and some trash blowing around. He said, no, look, look more carefully. What do you, what do you see? I said, Dad, I don't see anything. He said, look farther out. What do you see? More of the same. Nothing. He said, what do you see at the end of the field? Fence. Good. He said, do you see a fence post? Yeah. He said, all right. Fix your eyes on that fence post. I'm going to keep talking, but you keep looking at that fence post. Do not take your eyes off that fence post. You got it? I said, yes, sir. He said, now, I'm going to get off the tractor. You keep your eyes on that fence post. He got off the tractor. He said, now. Push the clutch in, but don't take your eyes off that fence post. All right. Push the clutch in. He said, now, without taking your eyes off that fence post, reach down and start the tractor. Start the tractor. He said, now, without taking your eyes off that fence post, put the tractor in gear and start moving forward. He said, when you start moving forward, keep your eyes on that fence post, then reach behind you and find the rope, trip the plow. Keep your eyes on the fence post. He said, you go all the way across that field. Do not take your eyes off that fence post. If the dog barks, don't look at it. If a bird flies over your head, don't look at it. If the neighbor goes by and honks his horn, don't wave. Just go all the way across that field. With your eyes on the fence post. You got it? I said, yes, sir. He said, go. Why? I let out that clutch and, and uh, started moving forward. I reached back. I got the rope. I tripped it. Went across that field. You know what? The dog did bark. And a bird did fly over my head. And the neighbor went by twice and honked his horn. But I got into that field and I turned that rig around and I looked and that, that furrow was absolutely straight. And my dad was standing in the furrow and he went like this. And he went back to the barn. You know, I learned something that day. I learned that you've got to keep your eyes on a goal or you're going to get distracted, and life's going to be off. And Jesus says, set your affection on things above, not on the things of the earth. I I think the devil sometimes distracts us, not necessarily with sin, but with stuff. And and we get so double-minded in our way. And as a result, we lose our purpose, we lose our our peace, we lose everything that God wants for us because we don't have a purpose mind. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. A purpose mind, a pure mind. But then I think thirdly tonight, a positive mind. Now when I say a positive mind, I'm not speaking here necessarily of the power of positive thinking, although I think You know, in some of our our dealings in life, that's not a bad thing to have a positive, you know, attitude about life or, you know, a positive thinking that something good is going to happen. But I do think that we are succumbing in our circles to some fatalism. And I'm going to make a statement that it might offend you, but I believe fatalism leads to extreme Calvinism. Because, and I'm seeing it all over the country. I'm seeing it in churches. I'm seeing it in Christians. We've got this idea today in the 21st century that nothing can happen for good. Nothing can happen for God. Well, you can't build a church today. You can't have a revival means today. Nobody will come. You, you can't plant the church today. It's too hard. You can't find a building. You can't, you, you, you know, you're not going to reach people. Soul wind doesn't work. You know, preaching the Bible—that's old-fashioned. Uh, nobody, nobody's gonna, and, and we have this fatalistic attitude. And you know what happens when you have that kind of an attitude of fatalism? Eventually, you have to have a you have to have a theology that accommodates it, and extreme Calvinism does. Whatever happened to? Unto him that's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. What happened to call unto me, and I'll answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not? What happened to I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me? It's not the power of positive thing that here's what I can do if I just think positively. It's here's what can be done because of Christ working through me and in me to accomplish something for his glory. A positive mind with God. Nothing is impossible. Being confident this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in, you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Oh, how we need some people in our churches that will not succumb to this negativity and this, this fatalistic kind of approach to, to the work of God. But that we would believe once again, help thou our unbelief. When I was a senior in college, I was... Um, I was dating a young lady that had already graduated and she was teaching in a Christian school down in Rockford, Illinois. And we would, we would talk from time to time on the phone, didn't have cell phones in those days. Most, most of our relationship was accomplished through stamps rather than cell phones. But um, we wrote and called occasionally, you know, it was expensive to call. I remember the first time I preached in Australia, I called my wife once during that 10-day trip and it cost me $33 for two minutes. <laughs> Things have changed, haven't they? But I called her up, and, and we were just talking for a minute. She said, uh, John, we're having a revival at our church next week. I said, really? Uh, who's preaching? Who's the evangelist? And she said, uh, Ron Comfort. Oh, man. And we talked about that for a minute. And boy, after I, hung, after I hung up, I thought, boy, it'd be great to go down. It was only 90 miles. And uh, I thought, if I could go down there one night, uh, I could see her, and I could hear Dr. Comfort preach. I was called to evangelism. I I knew that's what God had for my life. And yet I didn't really know how to get started. Here I was a senior about to graduate. This was the spring of the year. and, and, uh, And I was graduating soon, but I really didn't have any idea how to get started in evangelism never took any classes in it. They didn't have any classes in evangelism when I was in college. The president, Dr. Cederholm, he had been in evangelism for 20 years and he would tell a lot of stories about evangelistic work and boy, my heart would burn in me and I I wanted to learn about it, but I just didn't have any real formal training in. I had no idea how to get started. And I loved Dr. Comfort. He would come to the college and preach. I'd never met him, but I loved his preaching. He was about 10 years older than me and, and kind of, you know, within reach. It was kind of a younger preacher that I thought, yeah, I could be doing that someday, you know, and I could see that. And, and I, I, I thought, boy, maybe I could go down there and, and, and meet him and maybe ask him some questions and, and, and so on. So I, I went to the dean's office, got a pass. And one day after classes, I, I, I drove down there to Rockford and got to see Diane for a little bit. And and uh, then it was time for the service. And I chose a seat kind of near the back on the, on the left-hand side. And boy, Dr. Comfort preached that night there at the Memorial Baptist Church, a wonderful service and several decisions. And, and it was just kind of a, a great atmosphere to be a part of. And after the service ended, he was down front talking with some people. And I kind of laid back because I'm an introvert by nature. I, I don't mind talking, but I don't, I'm not real good at starting conversations. And, and so I, I'm introverted. And, and so I, I waited. And, and finally, people began to kind of drift out. And I thought, well, it's now or never, you know. So I, I went up front. And, and uh, he saw me coming toward him. And I, I put out my hand. And I said, Dr. Comfort, my name is John Getch, And I'm a senior at Maranatha. And I believe God's called me to evangelism. And he shook my hand and he said, how old are you? And I said, 22. And he said, well, God won't use you until you're 30. And he walked out the door. And I thought, what was that? I drove 180 miles to hear that. What a jerk. I was crushed. I don't remember if I talked to Diane before I left that night or not. That part of it is just kind of clouded from my mind. I could take you to the exact parking stall in the parking lot of Memorial Baptist Church on the west side of Rockford where my car was. And I can remember sitting in there, just unable to even start the car. I just I didn't understand. Finally, I got the car started and I started driving that 90 miles back to the college, and, and uh, God and I had a talk, and I did all the talking. And I said, "God, I'm not waiting till I'm 30. I don't know what Dr. Comfort meant. I don't care. I'm not sitting around for eight years. I I know I'm 22. I already knew that before I came down here. <laughs> I said, I'm not, not, not going to sit around for eight years. God, you've called me. And the Bible says, faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. That's what you said, so do it. <laughs> I'm going in evangelism. And I did. When I was about 43, I was preaching in a revival in central Illinois. And, and I got to the church and the pastor and I were talking and he said, by the way, Brother Getsch, Ron Comfort's in town. And he said, we have another good independent Baptist church across town, and we're sister churches, we have good fellowship, and they're having Dr. Comfort, we're having you. And I was talking to the pastor this morning, and, and uh, we're going to get together and play some golf on Tuesday. I thought, great. it be my chance, you know. Been an for 20 years, show him, you know. And so, so anyway. Tuesday came, we went golfing, and of course, it was very cordial, and Dr. Comfort and I exchanged, you know, greetings, and we started playing golf. Now, Dr. Comfort's a great golfer, a very intense golfer. He's intense about everything he does, but he's an intense golfer, and he's a good golfer. So we're playing the first few holes, and, and uh, just little conversation as we meet at the green, you know, or tee off, you know, a little conversation here and there. I think it was about the seventh or eighth green, or seventh or eighth uh, uh, hole, that Dr. Comfort and I both hit our ball to about the same spot. You know, normally, we weren't really in the same spot. I'm normally over in the woods someplace. But he, we were kind of in the same spot on the fairway, and I thought, well, this is my chance. We're going to have to walk together toward our ball. So we're walking down the fairway, and I said, Dr. Comfort, do you remember preaching a revival in the spring of 1974 at the Memorial Baptist Church in Rockford, Illinois? Dr. Ralph Martin, he said, yes, sir. I said, do you remember that I drove down one night from Maranatha and we met? He said, yes, sir, I remember that. I said, Dr. Cover, do you remember what you said to me? He said, yeah. And he hit his ball and he walked up. Three years ago, Dr. Comfort was 77 years old. He's 80 now. He was 77. And he and I were scheduled to be the keynote speakers at a men's conference in Sacramento. And the organizer of the event is evangelist Tim Schmidt. And, and Tim had, had, had called. I'd helped him get that, that conference kind of started years ago. And, and uh, Tim called and he said, Gatch, we got you preaching the first night with Dr. Comfort. And Tim had gone to ambassador, so Dr. Comfort was a great friend of his. And he said, you're both preaching the first night. We're going to start at 6. If you could get here 20 minutes early, we're going to meet in the back, have prayer with some of the other pastors that are here. And I said, I'll be there, Tim. I'm going to teach that morning and the drive to Sacramento. It was going to be tight, but I, I said, I'll, I'll be there. Fought through the Sacramento traffic, got there 20 minutes before the service, walked back to the pastor's office, and there's Dr. Comfort sitting in a chair, 77 years old. And we greeted each other. There were other pastors there. We had some prayer. And everybody else went out to the service. And Dr. Comfort and I, we just, he just sat there. And I thought, well, he ain't going anywhere. So this is my shot. I said, Dr. Comfort, good to see you. I said, do you remember preaching a revival at the Memorial Baptist Church in Rockford, Illinois, in the spring of 1974? He said, yes, sir. I said, do you remember I came down and met you that night? I was senior at Maranatha. Yes, sir. I said, Dr. Conford, do you remember what you said to me? He said, yes, sir. He didn't go anywhere. I said, Doc, why'd you say that? He kind of leaned forward, and he pointed his bony little finger in my face, and he said, John, I said that because I knew that if I told you that, you'd have to get your eyes on the Lord and trust him for everything he would do with your life. And he said, "Do you do that. Jerk. <laughs> you <know? laughs> but you know, I'm thankful that God allowed me to have a positive mind about that. I don't know what maybe you're up against, and maybe, maybe people are saying, that ain't going to happen. That prayer's never going to get answered. God can't do that. Listen, get your eyes on him. Thou keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed upon thee, because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord Jehovah, for the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Is your mind pure tonight? Boy, if not, let's confess the contamination. Let's get the pollution out. Let's get it off the screen. Let's get thoughts up there that are true and honest and lovely and pure and and virtuous and And worth giving thanks for. Let's get some pure thoughts. Let's get a purpose mind. Let's get focused once again. So many distractions. And not all sinful. But a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And then let's get positive. Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and by thy stretched that arm, there is nothing too hard for thee. A positive mind because of who he is. He's that rock. He's able to do far more than we can ask or think.